the temple. I'm going to be primi primarily staying in Mark for that, so I'm trying to use these asterisks. Um, if you don't have a, a fancy flipping around Harmony of the Gospels, you can just stick in Mark. And then from there, I'm going to go to John with a brief sidetrack into Isaiah. Perfectly linear, you know. Well, let's pray. Jeff, could you open us? Amen. So as we're going through the Passion Week, last week we started. Uh, so last week was Monday and today is Tuesday, um, just to make sure that everyone's completely confused. Um, and so we're heading towards the end of the week. Um, Whoever is at the soundboard, I seem really loud to my own ears. Should I? Oh. Okay. All right, we're coming in hot. <laughs> Sounds good. The ringing in my own ears. Um, something that I love in, in just the way that the Lord works in life, right, is you spend time preparing and you spend time studying, and it's rich and it's valuable. But just in order to make sure that you don't get too confused that, you know, maybe I'm causing all of this blessing that I'm getting out of this material, He'll throw you curveballs. So this morning, just to make sure that I didn't confuse success with skill, um, I, need to, I needed to put air into my tires. So I stop and, um, at the gas station to get air. Well, you need coins, right? I need 25 cents times two. I need two bits in order to get this air pump thing running. I have no cash on me. So I go inside and I need to purchase something in order to get 50 cents in order to fill up. But now we're at the front and I've got a card and I've got a bottle of water because I don't need snacks and things. And the guy's looking at me is like, what, what are you trying to do? I'm like, well, I, this is, I, I just need 50 cents. I'm like, I could write you a check and make it even more complicated. He's like, actually, that would be easier. What? Okay. He's like, yeah, so make it out for $3. Okay. So I'm writing a $3 check to buy a bottle of water in order to get 50 cents and put air in my tires. <laughs> like, but I loved, I loved that, just driving from there here and just realizing, like when we talk about Scripture and we look at how the Lord does things, we have this retrospective that sometimes we don't appreciate where we're like, yeah, look, and the Lord went directly from here and he went directly to there to accomplish a thing and then everything was done right away and, and we sometimes miss the fact that Jesus is being so patient with his own creation and he's not doing things the most efficient way because frankly, like not talking to us and just kind of getting stuff done would be far more efficient. But there's a love and there's a patience that he has for us. And there are so many repeated illustrations that he goes out of his way to create for people who just don't understand the idea of like, hey, I'm coming here to die. And they're like, okay, well, we don't know what that means. Well, it means that I've come here to die for you. Well, we don't quite get it. Like, what's the deeper meaning? Okay. So we're going to get to that in John. Uh, but just beginning in Mark, um, 
Mark 11, chapter 12, says, On the next day, they, uh, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So a few things here, right? It's Passover. It's a huge celebration. But there's, for the, probably not the second time, but the manyth time in his life, there was no room at the inn, so to speak. So um, Jesus is actually, he's got his Airbnb in Bethany, and he's walking in. Uh, he's commuting by foot each day. So that's why you have this uh, repeated mentions of him leaving the city and arriving different places. So he's walking, and having a completely human body, he becomes hungry. And this is a section that I love because this is just an example of going to the text and having the responsibility of like, hey, teach it, and don't mess up. Okay, go ahead. Um, there's this panic of like, well, how do I explain the fact that it sounds very schizophrenic, that Jesus sees a tree, it's got leaves on it, he goes there, there's no figs, but it's not the time for figs. So how, why is he expecting figs when it's not the time for figs? Does Mark know more than Jesus? And um, again, it's this, it's this thing where it's, it's much more simple, but being around much later in time, there's a lot of the context that we've missed. So I'm going to read this section. This is from uh, Frederick Ferrar's Life of Christ. Um, and I love it because it's just the simplicity of what's going on says, there are trees in abundance even now throughout the region, but not the numerous palms, figs, and walnut trees which made the vicinity of Jerusalem like one shade-filled uh, park before they were cut down by Titus in the operations of the siege. This is referring to 70 AD, the siege of Jerusalem. Fig trees especially were planted by the roadside because the dust was thought to facilitate their growth, and their refreshing fruit was common property. Isn't that weird? You plant a tree and everyone can have from it? At a distance in front of him, sorry, sorry, Texas, sorry. Uh, at a distance in front of him, Jesus caught sight of a solitary fig tree, and although the ordinary season at which figs ripened, blah, 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 and although the ordinary season at which figs ripened had not yet arrived, yet as it was clad with verdure, and as the fruit of the figs set before the leaves unfolded, this tree looked more than usually promising. Its rich, large leaves seemed to show that it was fruitful, and uh, their, usually, their unusually early growth um, and their unusually early growth that it was not only fruitful but precociously vigorous, which I love the idea of this precocious tree. Um, there was every chance, therefore, of finding upon it either the late violet-colored caramuses or autumn figs that often remained hanging on the tree all through the winter and even until the new spring leaves had come or the delicious bakuroth, or first ripe, of the fig tree, which Orientals are particularly fond of. The difficulty raised about St. Mark's expression that the time of figs uh, was not yet is wholly needless. So it's not, he's not saying that Mark's comment is needless, but he's saying the idea that Mark's comment creates a problem is needless, um, which I really appreciate just, again, you know, standing on, on the backs of other scholars that, um, that there's so much that, uh, that is really simple and straightforward. Um, 
for me, I was surprised to find that there are trees that carry fruit absolutely all year round. But this here, I think, is this wonderful picture because of where we're heading just after this fig tree, where you have this presentation of abundance, right? And then arriving there, there's nothing. There's not anything from the last year, and there's not anything from the current year available, um, which is at odds with what's advertised. And so the point here is not that Jesus is unable to know this, but he, again, he is repainting a picture of the problem that he has seen. He's about to go and cleanse the temple for reasons that we'll explore. And that is really almost this, this, this is almost like a, a setting up that picture for the disciples as they're going into Jerusalem. He's setting up a picture that he's going to physically carry out um, the, um, the implication. With the outward presentation of the fig tree, it's drawing people to it, but once it's there, it can't actually supply the promise. And that's also a big part of the, the, um, the reproof of what Jesus says in Isaiah, that Israel, as its role in the world, was unique, that it was those, the one chosen people of God, that there was no other place on the planet where you could actually go and the presence of God would arrive in the temple. And Israel, by its obedience, was supposed to draw people to the Lord. And yet, Israel is having this, this outward presentation of like, oh, we're wonderful and we're absolutely obedient and we're righteous. Look at my righteous. I will enumerate my righteousness for you and all these things that I do, this is why God loves me. And this is, I am the cause of my own blessing because these are the things that I perform. But then getting there, the people find that they are prevented from worshiping, the people that desire to draw near to the Lord. And this isn't the first time that this is happening. This is very much the same as with um, John the Baptist in the wilderness, baptizing and the Pharisees come out. And John responds by saying, you brood of vipers, that he completely understands that they're arriving not because they genuinely want to be baptized for repentance, they're arriving because it's kind of the thing to do and they want to be seen arriving. They want to be seen doing the same things that other people are doing for popularity's sake, but the actual attitude of their heart is missing. This is, this is also what's happening here. Any questions? Okay. So he, Jesus curses the fig tree and then um, still in Mark 11, verse 15, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began, to, uh, began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So this is kind of that, that other bookend, um, that when he arrives, he finds this place of worship has been turned into a market and a place that should be solemn and that should be reverential. You've got people hawking wares and shouting about discounts and haggling. And, um, and it's significant because the dry erase marker, um, you've got the, 
temple complex. This is not to scale. Um, you have the, uh, the court, you have got the, you've got the wall outside, and you have the actual location where you have the Holy of Holies. Um, the surrounding area, so this, for those of you hearing on audio, I'm drawing chevron lines in a box with a concentric box. Um, this area was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so it was this place of like, look, if you are not Jewish, you are not prevented from worshiping because you can enter in and you can partake. Based on the word of the Lord, you are not permitted to enter into the temple itself, but you are allowed to be in the court. And that area is basically where they're parking their trailers, right? And this isn't the first time that Jesus is cleansing the temple either. Um, in John 2, that's where he actually makes a belt uh, out of cords and starts whipping people out of there. And I think this is amazing because this is, on the one hand, right, like his, his righteousness and his frustration is absolutely appropriate because the very one who spoke the words to Moses about how they are, conduct, uh, how they are to conduct himself, he's walking around in this area. And it is appropriate for God to be frustrated about this circumstance. This isn't like, hey, if you want the hamburger or the hot dog, you can order whichever you want. But this is saying, this is an expression of my righteousness. This is an expression of my holiness. You don't get to voice an opinion. You don't get to vote about how you think should, things should go in the temple. This is how it is to be. If you have an understanding of the word good, righteous, holy, grace, those words, that vocabulary exists in response to an observation of what the character of God is. So it's not that we create words like righteousness and then God has to obey them, but it's that we look at who God is and we try to wrap our minds around the infinity. And we have to create, we have to look and grab small facets of who he is and try to articulate everything that we see. That's important, especially with modern culture of like, yeah, just, you know, have words mean whatever you want. This is a, this is a circumstance where the absolute character of God is being violated in such a way that this expression of being able to approach the throne is made possible because he is laying out your obedience and by faith responding to that, you are able to actually interact because he has made it possible. And people are saying like, no, that's fine. Like we can just, you know, like I can actually make, I can make a great buck. Look at how much space there is here. I could rent this out. I could claim that this, this area is mine and then I can rent out tables and I can sell doves. People are gonna be there anyway. What if they don't have a dove to worship? I can sell it to them. This is, I can make a killing in this area. That is his frustration. Um, so I'm gonna read from Isaiah 56 to have a, um, a better picture of the verse because again, as Jesus is quoting this verse, he is speaking it to people that when he says part of this verse, that whole section of scripture is what he is wanting to call to mind to them. Not just the single quote, but the entire context. So from Isaiah 56, verse 1, and the, um, the NESB recap of this chapter, it's even called the rewards for obedience to God. So from verse 1, thus says the Lord, persevere justice and do righteousness, 
For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of the sons and daughters. Uh, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give to them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. To, uh, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer of, uh, for all of the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. All of you, um, all you beasts of the field, all you beasts of the forest, come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. The dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to an unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. So this is from Isaiah. Um, this is going back several centuries prior to this. Jesus is quoting. And this isn't anything that would be new, this cycle of the Lord redeeming, the people responding in obedience, but then after either within a generation um, or even during the same generation, them again falling away and being reproved and being disciplined by the Lord so that they would again return to him. That's a continuous cycle. But it's also in pride because of this self-constructed righteousness that the chief priests, the Pharisees, who are hearing this, they have tried to move away from needing to, needing to listen to the Lord. They have tried to construct their own righteousness so that they can say, well, I'm adhering to the righteousness that I need, which is the one that I wrote up, but let's just gloss over that. So they don't want to hear the possibility that they may be in error. They don't want to hear that they may be like those past generations that didn't listen. They want to set up this ridiculous target that they can push over because they're, kind of, they're trying to find out ways of like, well, how do I already meet something? Okay, well, stuff that I'm already doing anyway, let's just make that the goal. And so when they hear from the Son of God himself, when they hear from the Messiah who they have awaited since like Adam and Eve, right? When that person stands before them and speaks to them, they have no humility. And in their pride, they decide, well, we know how to respond to these words. Let's find out how to kill this person because he is saying things and the crowds like it, and that's no good. They, they respond in rebellion with no humility. And yet, 
the Lord doesn't strike them down and he doesn't walk away and is like, fine, you know what? You figure it out on your own. But he continues forward to the cross knowing that the people that he is going to die for do not understand. They do not welcome him, most of them. Um, and even those that do welcome him, he knows that they will abandon him. But he does this because he knows the strength that we do not have. He knows that when we are weak, he is strong. He knows that he is strong. This is that, um, that simple statement from Hebrews, I think is so powerful here in these circumstances, that who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What is the joy set before him? It is relationship with us. It is that simple statement where we think like, yeah, but I mean, I, I interact relationally all day long. I interact relationally with my friends, with my wife and with my kids. And sometimes I talk to people here and I talk to people there. And like, is that really that special? Yes, because it is such an integral part of how the Trinity interacts with themselves or himself that we oftentimes neglect and forget that the reason why he calls us to be hospitable and to give and to welcome and to invite and to share is there is a deeper expression of the Spirit in there than we fully understand. Not that every time someone says, hey, I'm coming over, you have to say that's fine. It is in obedience to where the Lord has you at that point um, and trusting that he can speak. But all of this is going on while you have, um, while you have this really this sad circumstance of, um, of having the Messiah come to the temple, find it not ready, and to find the people who he is reproaching. Apparently, they're still, like, as he's kicking tables over, they're trying to go and, like, set things up again. And as he's, like, moving livestock out of this place, they're trying to bring stuff back. Because it says, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Which, if this is an ingrained cultural thing, right, I think it's also amazing that even though they are still attempting to restore, like, this nice commercial market to the court of the Gentiles, you would think that, like, if he's just a guy, if Jesus is just some guy, just some guy can't show up and make sure that all of these open areas are actually, that they remain cleansed. You would think that, like, you just need, like, six or seven people to come by and, like, drag him off. Like, if that's your area and if you've got business going on then, I mean, like, you can't stop one guy. I think part of that is that it's as he is teaching, right, the crowds are responding, and the Pharisees have that ridiculous fear of the opinion of people, you know, like, the presence of God, that's fine, but what if those people here don't come to my service? This is kind of what's going on. But... I think it's also just that the, the, the power, the authority that is Jesus by right is also being expressed here. And that I, I want to think that him saying like, no, stay out, that there is a power in those words that resonates with the, with the created nature of those people who are trying to move through the temple, that they find themselves required to obey. Not that their hearts are changed by it. I think it's a really, really powerful, and it's just a few verses. Um, 
but it's one that every time I read it, it kind of gives me chills about what he's doing, the ignorance that's going on, but the love and the patience that's still expressed here. Any questions or comments? Yeah. No, so the, the court of the Gentiles was a, like an opportunity for non-Jews to assemble. Um, some of the sacrifices would have to be transported through, um, but for the most part, like this wasn't like a, um, that you have made um, the, the sin offering, you've, you've sacrificed the, like the dove or something, and you've got the blood that you're taking to the priest, and it has to be taken through that area. This was that they had... I'm picturing like a Bernie Market Days style setup where they're just selling and um, they're dealing. And some of it would be under the guise of, well, this is related to the activity of the temple and this is related to. And that may be fine that it's related to, but you've picked a spot where like, <laughs> Scripture is really clear that this is not the kind of business you conduct in this area. You can find any other area. Yeah, Porter. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, in order to actually give these donations, they'd set up this different kind of currency. So you would basically, in order to donate to the temple, you would buy um, this special currency with whatever money you had. And, um, but again, it was something that, like, the, the argument would be like, well, yeah, but it's Passover. Everything's packed. Like, there's standing room only outside the temple here. So, like, we can't really set up here, but here is a fantastic space for us to conduct this business. That's, um, that's also why, um, as Porter said, that's why you've got money changers and money lenders there. It's not that you've got this independent, like, banking concern who's set up here, but it is that they are changing money for people to then be able to donate that money to the temple. Yeah. Um, those are good comments, thank you, and good questions. Anyone else? I was just gonna say, I think it's important to remember too that Israel never, you know, Jesus came at this time and they had these issues. Israel had issues from the, from the get-go. Yeah. You know, he, he could have come and, and had issues with, you know, okay, maybe they're not packing the, you know, the outer court with, you know, money changing and that kind of thing, but there were a hundred other things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That things had just been, you know, they kind of go, yeah, whatever. Um, when the book of the law is found, it's like, whoa. Yeah, so I don't know if it's the same thing here. There is a section from um, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah where they've forsaken the Sabbath. And so the exile and taking them out of the land, the Lord specifically says, we are now going to make up for lost time. Right. So you are not allowed to return to this promised land of Canaan, which I handed over to you. Um, until these Sabbaths, which you were commanded to keep, until that time is made up. Um, which is, even, when you look at the time there of um, when they're exiled and when they return, like the Lord's 
precision in bookkeeping of making sure that they are out of there for the exact amount of time and that they are returned at the exact time, um, I think is, in, is incredible. Um, and it, it is, again, this reminder of when the Lord says something, whether or not we think it's silly or we agree with it, it's like, that's great, but that doesn't matter because the one who has spoken it, that's what matters. And we can look at scripture and be like, yeah, but I don't know about this part and this sounds weird and I don't agree with it. Great, but who has the wisdom? And it may be that I approach something and I say, yeah, but I don't really know what's going on. But the response that I should have is to say, nonetheless, what the Lord has recorded, I need to, between worshiping my own wisdom and trusting that the Lord knows what he is saying, I need to set my wisdom aside if there is any confusion, and I can still seek the answers. It may be that the Lord purposefully, I know for me there are times when I'm trying to find out like what is the purpose and what is the function of something, and sometimes the Lord gives me that as an impetus to just search and to seek Him out and to basically be confronted with like I cannot cause myself to learn everything that I wish to and to be confronted with that. And then sometimes he clarifies a bunch of other things, but he never actually gets to the thing that I asked him about to begin with. And that's something where I come away with that, having to say, you know what? Based on how I've seen you work, based on the things that I've heard from you, Father, I need to be fine with that. I need to accept the fact that you have not made me to know everything in existence. The things that I learn if I learn anything at all, that is your work. I need to be grateful and for what I have received, I need to say that that, is, that came from you. If, if it connected with me at all, I did not cause that. That is your fault. I, and it's, it's simply because there are so many of these verses that I think this is some of the beauty of, of, of Bible study time. Um, am I that good at memorizing? No, I'm really not. But it's so often that there are verses that I've read hundreds of times before, and I come across them, and I'm like, wow, that's an amazing verse. It wasn't that amazing the first couple hundred times. Well, what's changed? I'm older, but that makes me kind of more forgetful. So I don't think I've unlocked anything there. The text is still the same, but to recognize what's different is that the Holy Spirit chose to speak through these verses this time. I did not force him, I did not make him, I did not pray him into activity, but he preceded me and his activity was there because of the pursuit, the love that he has for me, the desire for him to make himself known. All right, moving on from there, um, if we don't have any other questions. Yes, sorry. Oh, no. And I had to pick her up to join the trip at Muncie, Indiana. And I looked up on the wall, and I will never forget it. And there was a big sign up there that said, If I were to know all there is to understand about God, of course, this is on a campus there. And the 
got to know everything. Then God would be worth worshiping. And that's true. There are so many times where I've thought, you know, like there's, there's these crises and there's unknowableness in the future. And I think, well, I need to know what happens. But the reality of my heart is if the Lord spelled out, it was like, okay, here's what's going to happen. So it's going to be fine for the next three and a half years. You're going to come down with cancer. It's going to last this long, and then you're going to recover at this point, and then this is what's going to happen afterwards. In all honesty, my response would be like, oh, okay, cool. Um, so that adds up to 12 and a half years. I'll see you in 12 and a half years because I've got what I need now. So because you have explained to me what's going to happen, and how long things are going to take. Now I don't need you anymore, Lord, because I have information. And so now I'm secure because I have, I have knowledge. It, it, that's not true. And sometimes it's that there are things that he doesn't tell us because it's like we're not safe to know those things. We would take and we would run in the wrong direction. We would draw the wrong conclusions. And so often it's like, well, if I know how long it's going to take, oh, okay, it's going to take... Well, if it's going to microwave for that many minutes, I mean, I can go over here and I can, I can look up a video about a dog eating a football or something like that. We, we so often, we're so fickle and we're so distracted that the Lord knows that. He doesn't reject us for that. Um, I think there's a lot of times where just looking at my own kids, I think there's probably times when I'm all serious and about, you know, I'm filing my taxes and the Lord's probably just charmed at how adorable I am with all these things that are happening. Because um, it, it's, that, it's that balance of like, yeah, we have responsibility as adult. We have, we have stewardship responsibilities to take care of things that have been entrusted to us. And we can't. <laughs> like you need to do these impossible tasks, but apart from the Lord enabling you, they're, they're all gonna go to butter. Like there's just nothing's gonna happen there. And yet, I can look back and I'm like, yes, but I've paid my taxes on time and I, you know, I pay my mortgage and I use big words and it's just like, that's great. But like you were able to do those things because the Lord provided consistently and constantly. Also, you know how like you're made out of atoms and particles? Well, you didn't fly into pieces because he actually held you together the entire time. So let's not get too excited about, you know, you, you didn't have to like pay back taxes and all, all this kinds of stuff. Your, your back taxes are the least of your troubles in terms of the Lord's constant activity in, in provision. Speaking of, um, switching over to John chapter 12 and starting in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Just pausing right there, right, to recognize the Spirit's ability to call people. And it's easy to say, yeah, but in these circumstances with things that we hear on the news, first off, when is the news going to be like, by the way, you know, NBC here, dee -dee 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 we just want to talk about how amazing Jesus is, right? This is probably not what's going to make the news. It's easy to say all these terrible things are happening, and I don't see how anyone could be called to worship and follow the Lord. Well, that's true. Based on that kind of news, nobody would. But that's different from what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. And with all of the mess that we've kind of enumerated of, of our culture, sorry, I mean Israel back in the day when Jesus came, um, you have this simple statement here. You've got, you've got a temple that's crowded with commerce. 
And it says here there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. They are arriving for the purpose of partaking in Passover in whatever limited capacity they're allowed to. They are not Jews, and they are still coming to worship because there is an opportunity to. Which I think is just amazing because rewinding to last week, a.k.a. yesterday, um, with the triumphal entry, right? The timing is, is that is the day when the Passover lamb is chosen as Jesus is arriving. Jesus is presenting himself as the final and the greatest lamb for the Passover to take away the sin. And you have people here who, despite the, the shortcomings of what's going on, they are joining in and they are worshiping. They didn't plan it, but they happen to be there by simply going forward and doing whatever the next thing is. And it happens to be that the Lord has put it on their heart to worship and they're, they're arriving in Jerusalem with all this hustle and bustle going on because of the amount of people. They happen to be there. They happen to be witnesses to Jesus and the, the Passion Week um, leading up to his crucifixion. Um, and it's not because everything was going right, but it was simply because the Lord was calling them. Completing this section. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So there's this nice little request telephone game. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it uh, to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And recognize that we're almost out of time. Uh, anyone who loves his... Uh, any, sorry, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So... This again, right, the whole picture of the fig tree, that there's this opportunity, there's this presentation for a fruit and for a life that the fig tree doesn't fulfill despite the presentation, that Israel doesn't fulfill despite the presentation. Here, in spite of all of these setbacks and these roadblocks, Jesus is speaking the truth of what will happen. And the promise that these Greeks, these non-Jews are responding to even if they don't fully understand, these are the words they are hearing. And Jesus really is trying to set them up for success as much as is possible with these pictures as a way of saying, you are waiting for the Messiah. He's going to die. That's a good thing. Line those things up, and even if you don't understand, believe what you hear. The works that you see testify that the Lord is with me and that these miracles are happening as a way of testifying to the words that I'm saying. So if you have difficulty with the words, that's fine, but recognize all the other activity that's going on, and you're going to have to reconcile. If you don't understand the words, but you see the activity, then who's wrong? Is it you or is it my words? This is your choice. And he's trying to explain to them that the very blessing that they're hoping for, for one, it's not big enough. They're not hoping for enough because it is by his death that he will then 
redeem, he will then send his spirit. And these people who they're not even of the chosen people of God, yet they will receive something greater than the temple that they're standing outside of. They will be made greater than this building, which to date, like this is the most incredible structure, not because of how it's built, but because, it's, uh, because of its function. And that function will be removed from our location and instead replaced into every person because he says this is how it is to be. That is the most wonderful thing. It's this like, well, why? Because he says so. Because he has done everything that, there, that needs to be done. Because he has cleared the way. And from there on, there is nothing left except what does the word say himself? Yes. I don't remember that either, but I'm going to make a note. Um, Sorry, are there any other questions, comments? Okay. So you're saying the mountain's going to be cast into the sea? <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> um, so from here, it says, um, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I am both glorif- uh, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sakes, but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he would die. The crowd answered him, We have heard of the law, and that the Christ will remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So here you have, again, Jesus trying to reemphasize what is going to happen to give them an idea of, here is what you are to look for. I think it's wonderful that they, they do, they have studied Scripture, and so they do talk about, um, they, they do reference, you know, the um, that the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Savior, will remain forever. And so it's, they're still tr- struggling with this idea of death being greater than God, in a way. That they're struggling with this idea that if the Messiah were to die, then everything ends there because I mean, it's death, right? Nothing can, nothing can succeed death. Nothing can surpass death. Death is final. And in response... Because what they're saying is, is like, we thought you were the Son of Man, but you're saying you're going to die, or the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And they understand that as a reference to um, Moses with the bronze serpent. So they're trying to say then, like, if the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, but you're the Messiah, then who's the Son of Man? Because it's not possible for you to die, otherwise you can't be Messiah and stay forever. This is the question that they're posing. And Jesus' response is... 
For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. His response isn't to unpack their question, but it's simply to say, you need to believe. And the reason for that is he says, you, he's, he's effectively saying, you are having faith. You don't understand, but total comprehension isn't what you need. There will be more that you receive. And it's also easy to look at them and say, like, really, you don't understand? You, I, I would have understood. Would you? Because we live post-Pentecost, and I think there is an underappreciated constant, constant presence of the Holy Spirit in us, and even as a non-believer around, right, the world has had the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. Even unbelievers have been surrounded by the Holy Spirit in believers that are around them. And so I think there is a, there is a greater revelation that we live in the constant presence of which we desperately need, and because of how much we need it and because of how much we have it, we sometimes dismiss these times where these are people who are speaking to the Lord, and it's not possible for them to have the Holy Spirit yet because they have not been prepared. And Jesus' response is not to unpack and not to say, here's, okay, I've said it all, but here's, here it is all again. But he simply prompts them to trust in what they have received so far, to trust in what they do know. The last thing that I do want to, that I did want to point out here is, um, this is always a, a verse where the, the way that it's, it's explained always made me uncomfortable because he uses the word hate when he says, um, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. And my first question is like, why does he choose hate? Because I don't feel hatred towards me. And I think, so then it's this question of like, well, if I don't feel hatred and Jesus says we're supposed to hate, that's not it. But the misreading is like, well, Jesus, is he, is he calling us to hate? Because I don't feel hatred, so am I therefore being disobedient? And the answer is no, 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 that's not what he's saying. The answer is he says, hates his life in this world. And I think the easiest way to understand that is when we hear about all kinds of terrible news where the world is like, yay, we're so progressive, yay, look at this evil that is now like made into law, isn't this wonderful? And we have a response to that of like, no, that's terrible. I think that is a simple manifestation of hating the life in this world, that all of the things that the enemy is trying to propagate, we look at that and we don't say, yeah, that's wonderful. But there is a grief and there's a frustration because from the spirit that's been restored to us, we look at those things and we're like, that is so sad and that is so grievous. And I think that is also to encourage us that that revulsion of evil is something that is a gift from the Lord because of the spirit that he's restored us to. But prior to knowing him, it was easy to engage in evil and to not be frustrated by it. But having received the Lord, now there is a life within us that is opposed to that. And it's, again, it's a witness of his completed work that, that evil does not... The presence, the presence and the presentation of evil is not something that we can, we can glory in. 
we cannot take joy in because we have been restored to life. That doesn't cause us to act perfectly. That doesn't change the fact that we are finite and we are weak and we still need his constant presence. But to recognize in that frustration, to ask why is that frustration there at all? Why is it that I cannot celebrate with some of these news stories? And the answer is, is because the Lord has proceeded. He has gone before and he has established and he has restored. That is our hope also for tomorrow, to trust the same way that he has been faithful for yesterday and today, that he will continually only always be faithful. Anyway, I'm a little bit over, so I'm going to stop there. Father, we thank you so for your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for all of the, all of the encouragement that is from you. We thank you for your blessings, and we thank you for the ability to receive and to be, to be grateful. We thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name.